0: This is the Blaze Radio on demand. You're listening to the Church Boys Free Fall Q and A. It's
1: Billy Hollowell here, and I have Dr. Albert Moeller on the line. How you doing today?
0: I'm doing great. Very glad to be with you.
1: Well, listen, I appreciate it. I know you're busy, and I'm glad we were able to carve some time out here. Uh, so, you've been in the headlines um, quite a bit lately, and. I think one of the key issues that we've seen really since obviously June with the Supreme Court battle over homosexuality coming to a close, gay marriage at least, um, you know, we've seen a lot of debate follow that, a lot of fears coming from churches and, you know, the Supreme Court never really solves any social issue. You know, they solve the legality surrounding it and then people continue to sort of fight and debate. Uh, But we have seen a changing landscape in America um, on the issue of homosexuality. And I think one thing you hear a lot from sort of the the other side, and I hate to pit things together on sides, but I think this is an issue where that tends to happen. People who accuse the church, they say, oh, you know, Christians have mistreated gay people. Uh, and you hear that a lot coming from critics. And so I just wanted to sort of dive in um, a little bit heavy and sort of ask you, where do you think Christians and the Church have gone wrong in addressing the issue of homosexuality?
0: Yeah, I think that's a good question. I, I don't think the Church has gone wrong in standing by everything the Scripture teaches. That's our responsibility. But, but we've gone wrong, and uh, on this issue, gone wrong seriously in a couple of ways. I would say the oldest way is by uh, seeking to ignore uh, people in uh, in our midst and in our communities who are struggling with the issue of sexual orientation and sexual identity, and uh, so I, I think it's fair to say that we sin by just uh, ignoring or denying, uh, and uh, and certainly neglecting people who uh, who deserve more from the church than that uh, that neglect, whether benign or or, or otherwise. I think a lot of it was rooted in the fear of of dealing with these issues, the awkwardness of, of discussing this. I mean, for for centuries, uh, the, uh, the 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 whole issue of uh, of homosexuality was basically off topics or polite conversation, <laughs> and, uh, and and the church was complicit in that. I, I think the second way that that we have have, have s- seriously sinned is in uh, sometimes. Arguing simplistically, where the Scripture speaks uh, with far more depth, and, uh, and and so there are there are many Christians who who want to to, to hold the the, the a biblical position, but they do so in a in a simplistic way, and, and sometimes expressed not only simplistically but crudely, uh, in in a way that really doesn't uh, combine love of God and love of neighbor in in, in a way that we should, convictionally.
1: Yeah, that's that's sort of interesting. I read something from Tim Keller. He had done a book review, and I don't know if you saw this not that long ago, where he had uh, reviewed two books that were pro-gay marriage, two books that were opposed to homosexuality, and, and gave a really fair review. But I think it was one of the first times, and this is sort of, it was sort of sad to me, as a, I've been a Christian my whole life, it was one of the first times where I read it, and I thought to myself, wow, that really was a strong argument that made a lot of sense on why traditional marriage is the best system under the Christian realm and why a man and a woman belong together. I mean, obviously I've heard arguments before, but I think there, there, are, there isn't a lot of time spent on explaining the biblical argument, at least in the mainstream to the masses in a way where, where people get it. And so I guess, you know, I want to then turn the question over to you and, and ask why, you know, from, from a biblical perspective, is it one man, one woman?
0: Yeah, and by the way, I, I think it's fair to say that uh, that we probably don't make good arguments until we have to, <laughs>
1: um,
0: and, but, but because most of us are going to live on simplistic explanations until we can't any longer. I think that's just probably a, a, a besetting part of the human condition. But clearly, we're in a situation in which we've got to make these arguments, and uh, and, and not just for the external world, but but for ourselves. And for Christians, this doesn't This doesn't start ever with what marriage is not. It has to start with what marriage is, and with understanding that marriage is one of God's gifts given in creation. So you're looking at Genesis 2. You're looking at the biblical narrative before sin has entered the picture, before the fall has happened. And when God created human beings as the sole species, the the only beings made in his image, made consciously able to know him, And he created them male and female, and that's Genesis 1. And and so you have maleness and femaleness as a part of God's gift to humanity, and then you have marriage that comes so early in Genesis 2, where you have, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so a Christian understanding of marriage has to start with God's purpose in creation. And then the biblical storyline basically takes us to understand that everything that isn't that is sin. And that becomes really, really crucial. So when we start with, uh, say, same-sex uh, questions, that's not where the Bible starts. The Bible starts with, this is God's intention. Anything not that is sin. And uh, and, and there's a lot of heterosexual not that, before you even get to the possibility of uh, uh, of the same-sex questions, the, uh, the contemporary LGBT uh, set of issues. And so the first things you see in Scripture... Are, uh, are are forms of heterosexual sin, which is is sex outside of marriage, as the as the union of a man and a woman. But then, by the time you get just you know a few books into the Bible, there is specificity about a range of uh, of sexual sins. Same sex acts are included among them in the Old Testament. By the way, there's reference specifically to male same sex acts in the New Testament in Romans one uh, to both male and female same sex acts and relationships and And so, you know, when I'm asked asked this question in the contemporary context, I'm usually asked the question first of all, why are are same-sex acts sinful? And the Bible doesn't start there. It does get there very clearly. But it starts with the fact that marriage as a union of a man and a woman is the only proper arena for human sexual relatedness and And everything that's not that then becomes sin,
1: yeah, and that's exactly where where Tim Keller was going with it. And I think, you know, I had heard that but you sort of it gets lost in the debate and you don't I don't know that there are a lot of discussions that approach it the way that you just did um, that have been out there and I think look June 26 changed a lot of things for Christians in America and and I think People saw it coming. It has now come. And now there are a lot of questions about sort of where to go from here. You know, what do Christians sure. do? You have, obviously, you have the Kim Davises of the world. You have the bakeries of the world. You have the business questions. You have counselors who, um, counseling students who have had problems in school when they say, you know, we don't, we don't want to counsel um, individuals who want counseling for same-sex, you know, being in a same-sex relationship. There are a lot of questions. I guess, you know, before you even address all of that, How, in your view, does the Church move forward, um, I guess from a 30,000-foot view, dealing with the issue itself of homosexuality?
0: Well, I think, first of all, we have to deal with the fact that we're talking about human beings here. So, you know, it's, I think, always wrong, uh, although tempting, to say we're going to deal with an issue. Uh, Because uh, issues are, especially the closer you get to the human condition, you've got to recognize you're dealing with human beings. This is not like talking about climate change. Right. Uh, this is talking about sexual orientation, sexual identity, so by personhood, a- and the the thing that Christians have to remember is that we are committed by a- a- the call of the gospel and by the biblical worldview to human flourishing. So that that is really the worst part of our situation right now. We have people who say, "If you do not validate this, you are against my flourishing." And w- when in reality, we we are saying the opposite. But that's not a that's not a an easy message to convey. We actually believe, on the basis of Scripture, that what will lead to your flourishing is something other than what you're demanding. Right. And, and that is a very awkward position. I'll, I'll admit that right up front. But that's where the church is. So we have to deal with persons. We have to recognize this isn't an abstract issue. You know that, that somewhere out there in the world, there are people in our families, there are people in the in, in our churches that are struggling with this. Not to mention our neighborhoods. And. Uh, you know, the, the responsibility to combine, and, and by the way, in the biblical worldview, they're always combined. Love and compassion, uh, and, uh, truth and compassion are always combined because they're united in, in, in Christ, united in the Father. So, it, it, nonetheless, in a fallen world, we've got to work hard to make certain that at every level, we are driven not only by a concern for the truth, but by the compassion of truth.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's, it, it is a tough, difficult position to be in, because you also have the cultural streams, right? They have also gone in that direction. So, you know, it's sort of everywhere in society is saying, this is the new norm, this is, this is okay. And for Christians who don't believe that, it, it's a tough position to be in. I think you raised absolutely. an interesting point. Um, you know about about the notion of of treating people like human beings. Do you think that Christians miss the boat on that, and at some moments, in sort of just addressing the issue itself in a way that maybe yeah. didn't do that?
0: Yes, I, I I think that it's not limited as a temptation to the question of the LGBT uh, you know uh, questions and 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 uh, complexities, but it, it's probably most tempting there, and and it's because it's very very it's very, very tempting to to make an argument and to feel like that's where our responsibility ends. But we're dealing with human beings, and and so here's the most most, uh, uh, blatant thing about this, the clearest thing to me, is, is that there is no way to really deal with an issue like this if you're unwilling to deal with people. Right. And uh, that means in relatedness, and that means risk, and that means conversation, and and that means exposure in terms of, of, uh, of, of exposing ourselves to, to rejection and uh, and to argument and uh, and and to public policy uh, you know debates and all the rest. We really don't have any choice about that. But if it's driven simply by concern for an issue, then number one, that's that's not going to work and it's not going to last. It's got to be concern for persons.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I know one of the things that you've spoken about in the last few days has been uh, reparative therapy and sort of the rejection of it, and there's been confusion about where people stand on that issue, uh, which has been an ongoing controversy in a variety of uh, venues across the country. What Why reject reparative therapy? Just take me through a little bit of that, um, where you stand on it and why you stand.
0: Yeah, this is a complex question because uh, most people don't ask it as carefully as you just did. So some people will say, do you believe in reparative therapy? And if you say, no, that's not what I believe is best, they say, then you believe homosexuals can't change. That is not what I'm saying. I do believe that anyone can change, but by the gospel of Jesus Christ my rejection of therapy is long-standing and public, and it, gets, it was a rejection in terms of, uh, of being the basic answer to anything long before reparative was put in front of it, or homosexuality was even in view of it. In, in other words, what Philip Reef talked about is the triumph of the therapeutic. and yet people like Christopher Lash and Philip Reef, even from the secular worldview, talking about how that therapeutic uh, revolution that's taken place, it means that people think their most basic problems can be solved by therapy. The big issue with reparative therapy is that the culture was for it when the culture thought that homosexuals needed to change, and now it's against it because the argument is homosexuals don't need to change. That's not even really the argument that Christians can enter into because we believe that all sinners are called to repent of sin and to be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and and so the change comes to everyone. We, we actually, I don't think, should believe that any kind of therapy can deliver any ultimate rescue from anything. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that would be true of any human problem. I'm not saying therapy can never help, but, uh, but many of the things that are called reparative therapy uh, are, frankly, I think, uh, very wrongly directed efforts to get at a problem that isn't a therapeutic problem.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting way of, of looking at it. And I mean, look, let's say let's say somebody tries and tries and tries, and they and they can't. They feel like they can't get rid of same sex same sex attraction. What you know? Do people stay celibate? What's sort of the solution from there in your view?
0: Yeah. By the way, uh, uh, that's a brilliant question, and I, I love the way you ended on celibacy because that that's really the point. Uh, the, the biblical worldview says a couple of things about celibacy. Number one, it's an elevated moral condition. It's a gift. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 7, and and he's talking about those who, in in their adult lives, uh, for the sake of Christ and the Gospel, give themselves to celibacy and receive that gift in order to serve the Church, and and Paul's very clear about the fact that, you know, the the main purpose there is so that someone's unencumbered by spouse and family to serve the cause of the Kingdom. Okay, I understand that, and and the Bible, that's a very countercultural message coming from the Scripture. But the other thing is the Bible calls everyone to celibacy outside of marriage. And so for most of us, you know, let, let's put it this way. We, we, we do not usually uh, have marriage taking place within months of puberty striking. And so for, for most people, and, and I'm talking here Christians, for, for most believers— celibacy is a part of their Christian calling for at least a portion of their lives, and and that may be in, in widowhood, or it, it might be before marriage takes place. And, and so celibacy is not some weird condition. That, that we, we live in such a highly sexualized society that, that somehow celibacy seems like a, a weird condition. In the, the Christian tradition, going all the way back to the New Testament, celibacy has been a very valued understanding of what devotion to Christ will look like, anything outside of marriage. Uh, and, and so marriage is the only uh, is the only place where Christians are to exercise a sexual gift period. and And so when we when we ask uh, the question, What about someone who's struggling with this for a lifetime? the same thing would be true in terms of answer to someone who is struggling with any other form. Of, uh, of 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 sexual interest outside of marriage. Uh, now it's fair to say at this point. Well then. If you've got a young man who's struggling with uh, with heterosexual temptation, he can, according to your worldview, get married. That's exactly right, and that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in First Corinthians seven: "Better to marry than to burn." You know, do not don't, do not live in in that sin and temptation. But you can't say that in the biblical worldview to someone with uh, right. an attraction to someone of the same gender. Right. Uh, but the, but also according to Scripture, you can't say that to anyone who is, uh, look, has a sexual interest anything other than what is appropriately a husband or a wife, uh, depending on whether you're a man or a woman. So w- when you look at that, you realize the biblical worldview is a lot more countercultural than just saying no to what the culture wants to say yes to. It's a far deeper, more fundamental countercultural identity.
1: And you no, know, I and I appreciate you explaining that. I think it, it helps people, I think this is one of those issues where people on both sides, when they have opposing views, need to figure out a way to understand at least where the other side is coming from. And it's fine, obviously there's gonna be the, the major disagreement. I think the problem is where that where that disagreement goes and how people handle it. And I think you've explained it in a way that I would hope would help people who don't agree understand even if they, you know, have, have issues with, with the actual sentiments. Before we go, because you've given me a lot of time here, I wanted to ask you the title of your upcoming book, We Cannot Be Silent. Take me through why you chose that title and what you're hoping people take away from the book.
0: Well, you know, it's, uh, it's really interesting that the, one of the early books I wrote was entitled He Is Not Silent. And uh, it was about God speaking, and in particular it was about the task of Christian preaching. And uh, I got that title from a man by the name of Francis Schaeffer, who wrote a book that really influenced me as a teenage christian entitled he is there and he is not silent about the fact that god exists and that he speaks so when this book uh... was was coming together uh... this was not my first title uh... this was not the first thing that came to mind but it became very clear going forward that that really was the message of the book we can't be silent and and i'll tell you uh, billy that changed somewhat in terms of the cultural conversation between even say september of fourteen and uh, when you and i are talking now and it, it, it's because i think the great temptation of the church right now is to be silent in the face of cultural opposition you know post of burgerfell post just about anything has happened in the last in the last several months the great temptation is for the church to be silent when it has to speak
1: yeah no absolutely and i think that's the there needs to be and that's what i was sort of hinting at before we need to have a discussion and there needs to be a freedom to do that and i think people are afraid to do that right now um, and for a time, I think people on the other side, and gays and lesbians were afraid to do that. There was a time when that was the case, and now it almost feels like everything has flipped um, and, and where Absolutely. Christians are feeling afraid to do that. And so I think it's probably good for everybody to realize the upper hands that were once had and that no longer are, and the newfound upper hands, um, and those who no longer have them um, in the culture. And look, I appreciate you taking the time today, and I would love to, to have you back again to, to talk more. We could go on. Uh, for quite a while on this. It's a big issue, it's an important issue, and I'm really appreciative of you coming on.
0: Well, I really appreciate the intelligent questions, and uh, I've enjoyed the conversation, Billy. I'd be glad to join you again.
1: Thanks a lot.